Hello, this is Terrence McNally. In the first two years of the pandemic, globally, the top 1% captured nearly double the amount of new wealth as the other 99%. And in the U.S., 38% report they or a family member put off needed medical care in 2022 because it was too expensive. Here's my 2020 conversation with economist Branko Milanovic. His book, Capitalism Alone, The Future of the System That Rules the World, points out that liberal capitalism delivers rampant inequality and excess, while political capitalism, as practiced by China, serves up the same with a healthy side of authoritarianism. Hello, I'm Terrence McNally, and welcome to another episode of Free Forum, A World That Just Might Work. And I'm going to be speaking today with Branko Milanovic, presidential professor at the Graduate Center, CUNY, uh, City University of New York, about his book, Capitalism Alone, The Future of the System That Rules the World. And you can learn more at stonecenter.gc.cuny.edu. I'm going to say that one more time. Stonecenter, one word, .gc cuny.edu, and then look for Branko Milanovic, and that's M-I-L-A-N-O-V-I-C. He also has a blog at uh, G-L-I-N-E-Q, one word. The G-L is for global. The I-N-E-Q is for inequality. G-L-I-N-E-Q.blogspot.com. After a three-year hiatus since Trump's Electoral College victory, I've been doing a new interview every other week. Paul Hawken on climate change, Naomi Klein on No Is Not Enough, Arlie Hochschild on her book Strangers in Their Own Land and the Stories That Divide Us, Robert Wright on Why He's a Buddhist. The show airs on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA and streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn. Podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, most major podcast sites, and at my site, terrencemcnally.net. T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y dot net. Quick plug for participation. Obviously, this is an electoral year. We've got primaries happening and so on. But throughout the year, uh, ever since I've returned to the airways, I've been giving out these organizations, indivisible.us.org.com. Indivisible has about 5,000 local chapters around the country. They will send you an email every week telling you what is the most timely and relevant actions you might take, calls you might make, etc. Two organizations that are digital and work with grassroots organizations on a national level, moveon.org. That's the words together, moveon, one word, dot O-R-G. And in the state of California, the two words, courage campaign together, couragecampaign.org. Two that are very specific to communicating with your representatives, five calls. That's the number five in the word calls. Fivecalls.org tells you timely and relevant calls you might make to your representatives. And Town Hall Project, one word, townhallproject.com tells you when your representatives are going to be holding town halls back with their local constituents and when you can go and meet with them in person. Okay? Now to today's conversation. Today's guest says we are all capitalists now. In Capitalism Alone, Branko Milanovic explains the reasons for this historical shift. There, there were the days of feudalism and then communism. But here we are where the only system that really is in power is capitalism. And as liberal capitalism creaks under the strains of inequality and capitalist excess, it's fighting for hearts and minds with another form of capitalism, political capitalism, as exemplified by China. And Milanovic asks, what are the prospects for a fairer world now that capitalism is the only game in town, and what can we do to make that more likely? Branko Milanovic is a visiting presidential professor and core faculty at the Stone Center on Socioeconomic Inequality at the Graduate Center, City University of New York. He was formerly lead economist in the World Bank's research department for almost 20 years. His books include Global Inequality, the Haves and the Have-Nots, a brief and idiosyncratic history of global inequality, and his latest, Capitalism Alone, the Future of the System that Rules the World. Welcome, Branko Milanovic, to Free Forum, a world that just might work. Well, thank you very much, Terence. It's a pleasure to be, to be speaking to you. Great. And let me tell listeners, we're recording this conversation Wednesday, February 19th. Now, Branko, I like listeners to get a feel for the people behind the work and the ideas that mm -hmm. we'll talk about. So let us know a bit about yourself briefly. How do you see your path uh, to the work that you do today? And you can go way back, mentors, moments of decision, turning points, that sort of thing. 
Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. Actually, sometimes I'm asked that because um, I do have a sort of a combination that some people find unusual in the sense that I'm very much a numbers person, and of course, I made most of life, you know, life and career <clears throat> working with numbers. And I still, actually, when I want to relax, actually, I do number crunching. Even like, for example, on a plane or a, <laughs> on a train, I actually do quite a lot of numbers. On the other hand, I do have, a, and I did have, actually, quite a lot of interest for social issues, class analysis, and things like that. So that started even when I was in um, in uh, at university in uh, the then Yugoslavia, which is now Serbia. In Belgrade, I actually did statistics, and that's the I mean, statistics. Obviously, is something that actually leads you to do lots of numbers. And this is where I also discovered income inequality, because income inequality or income distribution, rather, you represent it as a distribution curve. So it's basically the link between income distribution and all the general statistical measures, uh, which then becomes kind of obvious. And um, this is the really the applied part of statistics that I like the most. <laughs> so how does one get from Serbia to the World Bank and then from the World Bank to author and uh, currently in New York for a stay. I know you'll be at the London School of Economics, uh, back and forth and so on. So how has that path? Yeah, right. so obviously, like every life story, it's a, it's a somewhat long story. So obviously, I have to give a very abridged um, version yeah. of that. I came to the World Bank uh, before the transition. So that was in the mid-1980s. And uh, I worked at the usual sort of for a couple of years at the usual World Bank, what is called the, the operational parts of the World Bank. For example, I worked on Turkey. Um, but then I started working, which really was a big change. I started working on Poland, and that was 1987. So that was before the regime change in Poland. And, for example, relatively few people have any idea how actually it was in 1987 sure. in Poland. Um but I, I actually worked on similar things that I worked when I did my dissertation in Yugoslavia. Um, it was on income distribution, and actually in those days more distribution of subsidies, you know, because Poland was a very heavily subsidized economy. Mm -hmm. So the question was actually who was receiving those subsidies, and you had household survey data that would actually allow you to do an empirical analysis of that. And afterwards, I moved to the research department because the research department created a unit which had, which was working on transition countries. Uh -huh. And within that unit, which was very small, I was the person working again with income distribution, poverty, and things like that, which actually existed. Uh, the data did exist in most of the countries, but they were seldom used because internally people were not essentially or should I say, encouraged to work on topics like income inequality or income distribution. Mm -hmm. And also from the point of view of the World Bank, the interest in those days was much more on so-called hard topics like you know, macro-liberalization, financial reform, privatization, exchange rate convertibility. <laughs> and at the same time, of course, uh, people were actually affected by the transition. You had a significant increase in poverty, most, of course, dramatically in Russia, but also elsewhere, and a huge increase in income inequality. Now you, you end up at the World Bank in that research department for nearly 20 years, and as I read it, you had access to their enormous database of household incomes, and it was there that you began to demonstrate how the benefits of globalization uh, actually had been distributed within different countries. And you were one of the first to be looking at this on a global basis. Am I correct? Yes, yes, you're absolutely correct. Actually, what happened is that uh, I was not actually this whole 20 years there because I was also, I had a two-year period, for example, with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and I was in Oxford and elsewhere. But basically, it was about 20 years. And uh, what was striking in that unit where I was actually lucky to be, that was the unit that became famous because it was the place where this famous absolute poverty line was calculated and also the global absolute poverty, like percentage of people who were poor in China, in mm -hmm. India, in Zambia. Really, the information from that comes from that particular unit of the World Bank, which had access to the 
data from household surveys from practically all around the world. And although the situation has become nowadays much better because there are many more sources of data, and generally speaking, the data are more acceptable, I mean, accessible, uh, it is still the case that if you were to choose, like, the best place in the world to work on that, I think there would be still that same unit in the World Bank. Um, and that's where I realized that actually what you could do is uh, you could actually put all these surveys together. It's a, not an easy job to do because you really start with microdata. You basically have thousands, thousands, hundreds of thousands, actually. At some point, maybe more than a million data. I, mm -hmm. I do not remember what was yeah. the actual total number. But then, of course, you simplify them. You create what is called percentiles, which means 100 observations ranked by income level for each country. So you actually simplify some of the database because otherwise it is absolutely unmanageable. Of course. And then you do it for as many countries as you can get. I'm not, um, I don't want to make this sound easy because it's not really uh, all accessible in one place. So you basically have to chase this data left mm -hmm. and right, but mm -hmm. you can find them. And you get it for about, currently we really can get it for about 100 country, 130 countries approximately. And then you put all this together and then you have to convert that into comparable units. You know, sure. you have the data which are expressed in their own local currency units, in, in dollars in the U.S., you know, in Canadian dollars in Canada, in euro for many European countries and so forth. And for that, you need another source of data, which is an enormous project, which is called the International Comparison Project, which compares price levels between mm -hmm. the countries. So what, what, I know what, it's already too yeah. long, but you can imagine that it takes actually yes. quite a long time to <laughs> yes. do that. Yes, 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 yes. And you leave the World Bank to write your first book on global income inequality, Worlds Apart. You've developed this uh, research. You've, you've you know, set your sights on this question, and now you leave to write a book. What was that like, just that shift from I'm in here doing research to I'm saying the world is ready for what I have to say? You know, the shift, of course, came gradually because I have to say that in the research department, the World Bank, where I was, the situation was quite good in the sense that we were very flexible. Uh, it functions more or less like a, uh, like an you know, academic department with mm -hmm. some differences because obviously, like recently, that was unfortunately in the news because there was an issue about the release of the paper, which was very critical about the the World Bank um, landing. So you know, it's it is like an academic department, but with some political sensitivity. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, for individuals who were there, it was very flexible because you could actually take, uh, you know, visiting positions or temporary appointments in different places and be teaching, for example in different places like Johns Hopkins first and University of Maryland, then as I mentioned before, Oxford and mm -hmm. Madrid and so on, uh, since long time ago, since probably mid-90s. And it was around the same time, and I remember 95, I think, was the year when I realized that the potential of what you could do with household service. And uh, the, the first article was published in 1999, and then afterwards I decided, as you mentioned, actually, to make it to, into a book format, and that was the first book which dealt with global inequality. I would say it's probably the first book ever written on the topic of global inequality alone uh, mm -hmm. and empirically mm -hmm. in, uh, in 2002. And now maybe an interesting detail maybe for your listeners and yourself. The question you ask, okay, so who was interested in the topic then? Okay, so I'm writing this book, you know, there are the data, there is like lots of stuff, you know, China, income distribution in China, U.S., Tanzania, Russia, you name it. Who actually cares about this? Uh, the answer which surprised me was not very much, it was not really the economists who care very much about that. It was political philosophers. And you kind of wonder, like, why did political philosophers care about global inequality? And the reason is that political philosophers actually defined the issue of uh, inequality of opportunity and equality of income at a global scale. And actually, they started thinking about that also in the 90s. Mm -hmm. But they had no idea about the empirical size of that. So you do know, okay, Indians are poorer than the Americans. Right. But you have no idea how many Indians, what percentage of Indians 
are, for example, better off than the poorest people in the U.S. Is right. it like only 10% of Indians or maybe 50% of Indians or maybe 80% of Indians? You have no idea where, for example, a, an American family with a median income, which means that it divides American families, so, well, if you rank them along the income distribution curve, 50% are poor, 50% are richer. I ask a question, where are they in the global income distribution? You don't know. Mm-hmm. So they actually, what they liked in my work is that suddenly it puts some kind of, uh, uh, how should I say, uh, reality you know, skeleton of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. of numbers yeah. on concepts which they really sort of uh, defined. And uh, the, the just long, and this long story is actually, it led me by association with them also to learn quite a lot about political philosophy as it deals with that global you know, global inequality, that part of global income distribution. So I became quite interested in that, for example, and in my teaching now, as my students can can kind of testify to that, I quite, I use quite a lot of terminology and the ideas of uh, political philosophy, including, last point, including in the terminology of the current book that we are talking about, Capitalism Alone, uh, liberal and meritocratic capitalism, the terminology of liberal and meritocratic comes from John Rawls, one mm-hmm. of the most famous political philosophers of the, you know, probably yep. last century. Yeah. Um, I was lucky enough to take an ethics course from John Rawls when I was an, an oh. undergraduate. Yes. You're a lucky guy because, of course, I've never met him. Uh, I've never seen him. Actually, he died, and before actually I even started reading, I knew obviously about uh, the difference principle and the veil of ignorance. But I have not read his book, so it was only in the ni- late '90s, early 2000s, that I actually started reading him. Yeah, yeah. No, it was amazing. Uh, I happened to be in college, uh, 65 to 69, and uh, you know, he was someone I definitely uh, studied under. So. How did this book, Capitalism Alone, happen? What did you? What was it that you said? Up, there's there's a new there's something new here uh, that extends because all of your books over the last few years have kind of been extensions of each other or fleshing out this global inequality question. What's new in this book? Yes, you're right, Doctor Tennis. Very much so. It's like, when I look now backwards, actually, the, uh, uh, the first book, which was Worlds Apart, was really very technical, and there were lots of numbers. I mean, there's some regressions, equations, and all of that. Then the Global Inequality book was, uh, uh, I think, interesting because it made a very strong distinction between inequalities which happen within countries, like, for example, increase of inequality within the United States, which we all know, we all talk about. You know, the infamous 1%, uh, what happened to the Gini coefficient, whether the median income or the median wage was stagnant and so on. From the global part, where actually because of the rise of China, India, Indonesia, and so on, very interestingly, we have a decline of global inequality. So we have at the same time increases of national inequalities in countries like the U.S., China, Russia, and at the same time, global inequality going down. So for many people, it seems like counterintuitive. Why did it happen? How can we explain? And that was the objective of, of that book. But the current one, Capitalism Alone, is more political. And, of course, I was brought to that book because of my interest in inequality. And, of course, the chapter on the U.S. deals extensively with inequality in a somewhat different way from the previous book, but it deals still with inequality. But now I was considering inequality in the social context of sort of formation of an upper class, what I call self-sustaining upper class, in both the American-like system of liberal or meritocratic capitalism and in the Chinese-like system of political capitalism. So what this book does have, which others did not, is sort of kind of, to use the Marxist terminology of superstructure, which means, uh, I mean, looking at the, the, the ideology and the class formation in those societies and on the backbone of empirical numbers, which both for China and the U.S. I use quite a lot. I'm going to quickly, I've read and listened to some interviews, I'm going to quickly define capitalism as you define it, and then if I'm off, correct me. But you actually, capitalism, use a fairly narrow parsimonious uh, definition of capitalism. You follow Marx and Max Weber, and you say that it means privately owned means of production 
capital hires labor, not the other way around, and production is decentralized. Is that, am I right? You're absolutely right. That's and so, exactly how I define it. And so that's how you look at China and say it's, it's capitalist. You look and, and these three factors are now in play. And the numbers uh, that you lay out of how much uh, uh, of the means of production in a country like China are privately owned, et cetera, et cetera, are, are much more similar to uh, the U.S. than I think most people would even imagine. Um, is this development, how recent is this development? Uh, let me just say a few words first on the sure. definition, just so sure. that people feel yes. comfortable with that. Yep. You know, this is, I think, really a standard, very, as you said, very parsimonious definition, which has been used for a long time, and it has quite a pedigree because it's basically Marx's definition that was then also used by Max Weber. I think that people who sort of use fanciful definitions, they sometimes use definitions in order to fit their case. You know, you can just add a myriad of things on that. But when you look at this very parsimonious definition, what it tells you is, I have basically privately owned capital and I'm producing things for profit. I'm not producing it because I love humanity or something like that. I just produce for profit. Secondly, it tells you, it is, as you said, actually, it, labor is being hired by people who own capital. In other words, the entrepreneurial function does not belong to workers. It belongs to people who have money. The third point, the coordination is decentralized. So you decide to produce something. I decide to produce something else. We are not coordinating. You buy stuff from me. I maybe sell it to you or whatever. But it's nobody. there is no central plan to tell us what we should be doing. So it's a very, I think, I mean, a meaningful definition. Now, translate that into the Chinese context. Then you sort of say, okay, what is the percentage of labor and value-added, meaning GDP of China, that is being produced under such conditions, meaning you have privately-owned capital, you hire people, Chinese labor, and nobody tells you what to do directly. And you find that, that, of course, the change started with 1978 and big reforms in the agriculture, because agriculture previously, and of course at those times, days, you know, more than 70% of population in China was in, the, in agriculture, non-urbanized. It started in 1978 with the and the end of the communal system and de facto privatization of land. So you had peasants working on their own small plots of land, and that was a big change. In the mid-90s, actually, I think by 92, approximately, to 95, you had large extent of privatization of small enterprises, mid-sized enterprises, and so forth, in the entire urban sector. And on top of that, of course, you had a myriad or millions of new enterprises which are privately owned, from the smallest to the largest to the, you know, giant enterprise like Huawei or mm -hmm. Tencent or others which were new enterprises, which were created, new companies that were created as China became richer. So the bottom line of all of that is that something like 75 to even 80 percent of the total production in China is done by the private sector. And more than 90 percent of people who work in China work in the private sector companies. So that's why I'm saying China, by all objective criteria, is a capitalist country not dissimilar from, for example, France in the early 1980s or from Turkey around the same time, or even Brazil, which had also large public enterprises and also the importance of state banking. So that's why I'm arguing China is indeed capitalist. Okay. And so then you, you, you then say, well, there are two different types of capitalism, two different forms of capitalism, liberal, meritocratic um, is one, that's the U.S., Western Europe, and then political, which is China, Vietnam, and several other countries. Um, d define, if you will, the, the distinction there. The distinction, uh, of course, the terminology, as I said before, the liberal meritocratic comes from, from John Rawls. Uh, meritocratic simply means that there are no impediments to legal impediments to you achieving any position in society or in terms of income, achieving any income level or income status. So basically, it's really equality before the law by every, for everybody. doesn't mean that actually there is any 
correcting function for the fact that one has started with maybe rich parents and another right. started with poor parents. So there is none of that there under meritocratic idea. Yeah. However, under the liberal idea, that was again what what the Rawls called liberal equality. Uh, you correct for two things. You correct for inequality in wealth, which which you do through taxation of inheritance, and you correct for inequality also of the background by allowing uh, having free public education. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, what we are seeing actually in most Western countries, we do have some correction for both of these things. So they could be liberal, they could be a little bit more liberal, a little bit less liberal. Maybe the liberal would eventually be very similar to social democratic. So that's very basically the range where the Western societies are. You know, I have to underline that actually, obviously, I speak of the U.S. and I use most of actually almost all examples in the book from the United States from because we have fairly good data here. But, you know, that same story more or less applies to countries as different than Denmark or Sweden or Germany and elsewhere. You know, they are very, in that sense, broadly speaking, similar to the U.S. Okay. Then let's Go move to China just for a second. Yeah, like, why please. is it political? It is political. That's the term used by Max Weber, because the state does have still a significant role through the banking system, through its ability to punish or reward people, and through basically absence of rule, rule of law, which allows the state to have the autonomy which it does not have in countries of liberal capitalism. So these are the ideas. These are the definitions. Very good. Let me tell people this is Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'm Terence McNally, and I'm speaking with Branko Milanovic, presidential professor at the Graduate Center, CUNY, City University, New York about his book, Capitalism Alone, The Future of the System That Rules the World. And you can learn more at stonecenter, one word, dot gc, dot c-u-n-y, dot e-d-u. I'm going to say that one more time. Stonecenter, one word, dot gc, dot c-u-n-y, dot e-d-u. And then look for Branko Milanovic. Uh, he also has a blog, and he blogs at g-l-i-n-e-q, dot blogspot.com and that G-L-I-N-E-Q is G-L for global, I-N-E-Q for inequality, G-L-I-N-E-Q dot blogspot.com. This is Terrence McNally. You're listening to my 2020 conversation with economist Branko Milanovic about his book, Capitalism Alone, The Future of the System That Rules the World. Okay, so you uh, talk about uh, some factors, uh, systemic forces that have been leading to the rising inequality, okay? And let's, let's deal with the U.S., okay? And I think this is fascinating. And when you talk about these forces, uh, I'm just going to throw out, it's, it includes mating. It includes the share that people have in capital versus income. It includes education. It includes political influence. That these factors push inequality sort of ever, ever further apart. Um, how long have those forces been in action and now, you know, in, in your answer to what those forces are and how they're operating? You know, I would say that the forces have been operating in a sort of certain strong way, practically from the early 1980s. You know, to simplify somewhat, I think basically we can say that with uh, the advent of Reaganomics and uh, the fact that the years when, with the year when Reagan became president, things changed. I'm not going to overemphasize the role of Ronald Reagan because it's, you know there are many other factors, uh, historical factors, which have led to that. But for simplicity, we can basically mm -hmm. say that was from the 1980s. You know, it's interesting to think, and not often people realize that at that time we have had a major change in the way that the world was economically being perceived and acted. And I mentioned in the previous question that you asked me, I mentioned the reforms in China. So look at the very I mean, strong similarity in the time when they took place. China, 1978-1980. U.S., you know, with Reagan, 1980. Margaret Thatcher in the U.K., 1979. Yep. Gorbachev, 1985. So in less than 10 years, 
you basically had, uh, and then India in the early 90, 1990s or 1991. So basically in 10 years, you had practically two-thirds of the world whose economic system changed. So it is quite a dramatic period, and I think people may not realize fully how dramatic it was. So basically for the U.S. to answer your question uh, directly, I would say it would actually, I would date it from the early 1980s. Now, and so I, I want you now to go into how those forces do, uh, you know, do increase sort of inexorably increase inequality. But why, what was it that made them mating, education? What made them take off at that point? They seem like such, you know, such essential parts of society. I think what made them take off is a confluence of three effects that economists have been trying hopelessly to disentangle, but I think that we cannot disentangle them. We have to take them all three together. And these are, first, policy changes, which, of course, in the case of U.S., did start with Reagan. You know, people of my age, remember, I was then always in the United States, we might remember that, uh, you know, Reagan uh, disbanded the trade unions, actually, when there was, a tra- well, not all trade unions, but the trade unions of, of air traffic controllers, you know. It, it was a pretty important strike. I mean, if you have a strike of, of you know, air traffic controllers, yeah. you're not sure that the planes might not crash. And then he replaced the entire, you know, uh, sort of unionized part of the air traffic controllers with the non-unionized. Right. What I want to say, these are really policy changes. We started with tax reduction and so on. Mm-hmm. However, that was not all. What then happened later on was globalization. Yes. Was globalization enabled in very sort of, you know, something of sketch was that you could now transfer your production outside of home, outside of the United States. Later, for example, Germany transferred outside the U.S., outside of Germany, you know, making cars in mm-hmm. Slovakia or Czech Republic. Yeah. So essentially you were able to do that, which, of course, is another element and has been studied a lot, and I will not talk about that right, right now, because uh, is element which basically gutted the middle class in many of the rich countries mm-hmm. and essentially exacerbated inequality. And the third element, which was the technological change, which was the advent of the IT revolution, which also had somewhat similar effect on what was called uh, routine labor, replacing routine labor with IT technology and now with uh, maybe artificial intelligence, robotics, and so on. So really, we have three important shocks. And they're also linked. I mentioned, you know, before I mentioned Reagan's policy decisions, but some of these policy decisions were later really driven by the external environment of globalization. So you could not increase taxation on capital owners. You could not increase taxation of very sort of, you know, skilled, rich people who can move somewhere else because you're going to lose them. You see there the, the connection between, yes. I think, globalization and policy changes. Right. And one of the things, I mean, you, you alluded to it before, but globalization is one of the key players in this this fact that while inequality rises nationally, it it, it decreases globally. That the, the emergence of middle classes in developing countries is uh, because the the uh, jobs have, and the manufacturing has moved there is the mirror of the loss of that middle class in the rich countries who have lost those industries to the cheaper labor. Absolutely, that's exactly exactly right. I, that was sort of shown very kind of in a very striking way in a graph that maybe some of your <laughs> listeners might have heard. It was called the, the elephant graph that was originally developed by Christoph Lachner and myself in a paper that we published uh, in, the, um, in, I think, 2013. Uh, and what that graph, elephant graph, showed is a very significant, I mean, huge, actually, increase uh, in incomes around the middle of the income distribution. That's really the back of the elephant. And then absence of growth among people who are a little bit better off, or not little, but significantly better off, but that's actually the middle classes of the rich countries. But the important part is that they did not have an increase in income. So they are, of course, still better off than the middle classes in China. But while the middle classes in China had a significant increase in income, on the other hand, the middle classes in rich parts of the world, like the U.S. and Western Europe, did not have, you know, 
almost any increase, and very often it was close to zero or maybe single digits over 20 years. You're right. I mean, I, the, I, I have mm-hmm. always used the statistic that real wages have basically not risen in, in the U.S. since 73. There have been little ticks, but basically flat since 73. Yeah, they've been flat. Of course, there are you know, other reasons people say, and oh, yeah. that's, that's also true. The median wage is flat also because of the higher participation of the lower-paid workers. But recently we have had in the U.S. actually the decline of, part- of participation in the workforce. Yes. In any case, I think that there was a rather it's uncontestable that uh, the, the middle classes of the rich world the traditional middle classes are what is called, for example, in the UK, it's called maybe more appropriately working classes, have really been adversely affected by globalization. Or at least, let me put it in a more sort of milder way, they have not gained from globalization as much as they originally expected and also as they were told by the politicians. <laughs> That's so I think right. This discrepancy between the expectations and reality is something which has been fueling all the political debate or changes, whether it be Brexit or Trump in the U.S. or AFD party in Germany and so forth. Okay, so now let's let's look again at some of the dynamics of some of those uh, other forces. Um, We talked about when those forces began to have big effects, which is uh, starting in the 80s, but it's one of them is that the rich have more of their income tied up in capital versus labor, and that that reinforces itself. Can you talk about that, the share? Yes, actually, the, the logic, and I'll try to be sort of brief on that, but the logic, in my opinion, goes as follows. All these technological and globalization changes have tended to increase the share of total pie, which belongs to capital. And we have very clear evidence for that in the last 30 years for practically all rich countries and even emerging economies like China. You know, with sort of better technology, you essentially replace labor. When you replace labor, the the share of income that belongs to capital goes up. Now, is this a problem? It is a problem because people who are essentially owning lots of capital tend to be quite rich. So what you then have, you have a transmission from that rising share of capital in total output into what we call sort of an economic language, interpersonal inequality. So in other words, in general in the U.S., the share of capital versus labor goes up. Does it mean immediately that actually inequality between me and, and you and somebody else would go up? Yes, it does, because it really benefits those people whose incomes are largely determined by capital ownership, or in other words, they have quite a large share of their income coming from capital or from ownership in general, and their incomes go up. So this is this crucial link between the rising, between technological change, rising share of capital, and rising income inequality. Okay, and then um, mating. Mating, it turns out, uh, is I think I think the the trends in terms of the wealthy marrying the wealthy. I was surprised by what you cite. So talk about that. Yes, that's actually, you know these trends that I first mentioned about the link between rising capital share and rising interpersonal inequality are then exacerbated by two additional trends. The first one, we'll talk about that right now, it's mating, and the second one is the fact that the rich people now also have more of income from labor. But let me, let's talk about mating first. That has been noticed for a while in the U.S. and then in other countries also, that there is an increasing correspondence or mating pattern where the people who are relatively rich in the top income groups tend to marry also you know, other people, whether it was men or women or men and men, women and women, it doesn't matter, other people who are also quite rich. And if you look at the data, for example, that I did, and actually they're shown in the book, you'll start with young American males in 1970 who are of age between 20 and 35 and who are in their top uh, uh, wage category. So you take these guys and say, who are they marrying? And it turns out that they have equally, equal probability of marrying also women who are of the same age, between 20 and 35, and who are in the top income group, 
or women who are really of the same age but at the bottom income group. So basically, we have more or less random mating yeah. where income per se does not matter at all or almost not at all. And that was 1970, right? 1970. Okay. Now, fast forward to today, 2017. These are the latest data that, that we had. And in every year, it becomes more and more. But let's look at 2017. You can ask a question. What is now the ratio? The ratio, as I said, was one-to-one, practically sort of irrelevant when it comes to to income level of, of women they were marrying. Well, now the ratio is three to one. So young American males who are in a rich category are three times likely to marry also young American females who are rich than young American females who are relatively poor. And this is a really significant change. As I said, it has gone, that percentage, that ratio has gone up every year that we looked. We didn't look at all the years. We looked at every five-year, and every five-year period that was actually gone up. And not only has it gone up for for men, of course, we are not surprised. Yeah. The same thing has happened with women. Sure. The, the change is even more dramatic from the one-to-one ratio for women. It became actually five-to-one. Ah. So essentially, both men and women tend now to, to marry people who are more similar to them. Because if the rich marry rich, that also means that those who are poor are more likely to marry those sure. who are poor. Sure. And, and then one that you put a lot of focus on is education. Now, remember for folks that it was the, uh, the, the uh, initiation of public education that was one of the things that really led to liberal capitalism and a spread of wealth and income. But what you're talking about is the elite colleges. And could you talk about that? Yes, I think actually I, I talk about the elite colleges and the, the, um, uh, the current situation in the U.S. about education in the context of what is called reproduction of the elite. Because as you already we were saying that you had an increase in equality, you had a marriage pattern where people marry each other and in the rich tend to marry also the rich. We also have what I mentioned before, the fact that many of the rich also are now, capital rich, are also now rich in terms of labor income, which is a new phenomenon at the top of the income distribution. So then the question that you have is the following. Okay, you have all these couples who are both working, who are both actually in the top of income group by, by you know, salary. They're also able to save quite a lot, so they have capital income as well, and they have children. So what do they do? They want, essentially, which is quite natural, so this is nothing to to sort of criticize as individual decision, they want, of, of course, to do the best for their children. So they are very highly educated. They know the importance of uh, early child upbringing and education, so essentially, as it used to be, for example, in Japan in the beginning, but now it has spread elsewhere in the world, they essentially send these kids, first spend lots of time with them, and send them to the best, uh, you know, original, you know, sort of uh, schools from four years of age. And then, of course, it goes on and on. And the advantage that these children have acquired by the time they come to the university education is enormous. It's not only that that even if university education were actually to give to everybody the same chance, let's suppose it was really totally free so anybody can go there. The the advantages that have been accumulated by offspring of of the rich people are enormous by the time when they come to to 18. And uh, on top of that, of course, we do have in the U.S. extremely uh, high increase in the real cost of colleges. And we know that, that the real cost of colleges and, the, and the housing and education are three things that really have, have gone up in relative to everything else. And that means that actually college education becomes even more difficult to access for people who don't come from, you know, well-off, let's suppose, affluent families. And in that sense, really, this top college education acts as a sort of a monopoly uh, maintained by the rich because that's where basically their children go. And last point in that chain, you can say, okay, this is great. They would be very well educated, so that's very cool. But the objective of that is not only that they should be very well educated. The objective is that they would actually maintain the position, social position that 
their parents already had, which means they would, having gone to such colleges, been well-educated, they would also command jobs with very high premiums, with very high incomes, and then they would repeat the same story on their own. So that's where this reproduction of the elite comes in. Right. And let me let me just clarify a couple of points or emphasize a couple of points. You've, you've made it a couple of times that this notion that nowadays the richest labor earnings are folks who have uh, also capital earnings, that there was a time in the old days when the aristocracy didn't work. Now, lawyers, doctors, financial uh, uh, people in the financial industry make enormous amounts of money in the, from their labor and from their capital, and that's sort of a new phenomenon. Okay, I just wanted to clarify that for people. The other thing is, one thing that I have been saying for years is that the um, inequality in America expresses itself in that the middle class, or what we call the middle class, can afford the latest technology. They can afford maybe even vacations. They can afford those sorts of things. What they don't do is it is much more difficult for them to afford houses, college, and health care, things that basically are, are the essential things to living a good life and having your children live a good life. Yes, actually, let me just answer I mean, all this, the, the two points that you mentioned. Yeah. On the second point, this is something which empirically we have the data for. If you look at these three things that you mentioned, housing, health care, and education, they have all risen in price compared to all other goods and compared to, of course, salaries that people make. So they have really become, uh, I'm not saying inaccessible goods, but certainly more difficult to access for people on sort of moderate or middle-level income. So this is really a, a big evolution, big change, which also has happened over the last 30 years. Regarding the first point, which is, I think, very interesting and which to get, goes with mating and in a very interesting way, that's the point that we find among the top income group. More and more people, as I said before, who are actually mating people who are similar to them. But on top of that, these, such couples have high income from both labor and capital. And this is not simply an impression. It's actually, you look at the data. Mm -hmm. I mean, as I mentioned before, I'm working with household survey data for in years. So obviously for the U.S., we have every year a new household survey. It's called CPS, Current Population Survey. And you can measure there the following thing. You ask. How, what percentage of people are in top income group, which is the top 10%, in both capital income and labor income? And as you mentioned, in the past, let's suppose, I mean, not suppose, we know that in the past, these groups really were not overlapping. People who were rich in terms of capital, who were, you know, aristocracy or people in, in Europe, for example, who were, you know, landlords and so on, well, they were not really sort of doubling up as, as wage workers. <laughs> so they had income from capital, they had zero from labor. Likewise, workers really had very little income from capital. Well, now at the top of the U.S. income distribution, we find that from the 1970s, again, I go back to 1970s to today, that percentage has risen from 15 percent of people who are both rich in terms of capital and labor to 30 percent of people who are rich in terms of capital and labor. So it's a, it's a remarkable evolution because it means that rich people not only have large income from capital, but they are also people who are working people. They are as you said, you know, they could be CEOs of the enterprises, they could be, you know, web designers, they could be startup, uh, working in startup companies, they could do a myriad of things where they actually work long hours. So, you know, the ethical argument which in the past existed, okay, you know, these guys are rich, but they do nothing. They're just, you know, landlords, they're just survey they you know land or maybe they they go and clip their coupons every right. six months or whatever now that argument cannot be made anymore because these guys are actually working very hard right so as you point out the the rich the wealthy work harder than the poor yeah, they do actually empirically. I mean, if you look at these numbers, how many hours of work they put in, they actually put in more hours of work than the people at middle level of income and even more than people who are actually at a very low point, like the 10th percentile, right. relatively poor in the U.S. Right. So as you point out, that changes sort of the moral 
at least the moral appearance of what's going on. It isn't, you know, these evil, lazy, rich, and the rich would then go, but these these uncultured, lazy, poor. What you've got is is it's much more blurry now. We know the effects are bad, but the the, the moral argument becomes a little more challenging, at least on an individual level. One one thing I wanted to throw out. Um, I'm sure you're aware of the book The Spirit Level by Wilkinson and Pickett. Um, which point, which an epidemiological study of 30 years of uh, data from countries all around the world, and they find that inequality hurts everybody, that from the rich to the poor, the more unequal a country is, the the worse off it is for everybody. And I just want to put that in there, that this is not just some, you know, data point. This is the real effects in people's lives. Now, I want to mention, I'm going to do this quickly. One I'm going to skip over here is that another one of the factors uh, reinforcing inequality is politics. And uh, there's the study by the two folks from Princeton, Galen, and, and I'm forgetting the second name, but you know who I'm talking, the study I'm talking about. Yes, I know. It's Giddens. Yeah. And, and what, they, what they found was that when the rich want something, it is much more likely, that policy is much more likely to happen. And that, in fact, when people in the middle class and lower classes might poll as wanting something, it has no chance of happening unless the rich also want it. Exactly. So uh, let me uh, go back to the to the point because I've, that's something that uh, people very often ask me. They say, "What is really wrong with inequality?" Mm. And we first, at first, really we can say, "Well, nothing is wrong per se." Because let's suppose that somebody who is very rich—I mean, a billionaire or somebody—gets another billion. Does it really affect me? You know, it doesn't affect. It doesn't. Let's suppose doesn't change my income. Nothing changes. So at first sight, there is really no effect on that, on, on everybody else. But at second sight, what really happens are several phenomena that we have to take into account, which actually happen over time. First of all, as more people, of course, not only get rich, but get ahead of everybody else, so that the gap between them and the others actually becomes wider, uh, the, uh, the preferences objectively that they have change. They are now able to, for example, not to care very much about either public hospitals or health care, public education, or even infrastructure, because they create their own infrastructure. They create their own health system because they can go only to the, you know, mm-hmm. very good hospitals and very good clinics where actually they pay, they have good insurance, they go to the best universities, they also can pay for that. Even infrastructure, they can live in a gated community. They don't need really all the roads all around the place to be paved if the road which they use is paved, and even they can actually pay themselves to have it actually paved. So then what happens is really what you have is basically Latin Americanization of the United States is that the, the, the rich really objectively have different preferences. So it is not a criticism of the rich. It's everybody, if their position would actually reason the same. If I don't get anything from public education because I don't use it, if I don't get anything from public health because I don't use it, why should I pay for that? This is the question that they ask, and legitimately they ask it. And so you see there immediately that the effect of having such high inequality immediately transpires or trans, you know, into the issues of financing or paying for public goods or public infrastructure. And it's actually what I want to emphasize. It's not because the rich are different from you and me. It's not because they are mean guys. It is simply because their interests are not aligned any longer with the interests of the middle class. And if the middle class person became today rich, he would exactly reason the same. And that point, then you realize that interests are different. There is reluctance to pay taxation or to actually do certain things, you know, for public uh, public goods, which is quite reasonable. The second thing which also happens, and we have to take that into account, is that the rich then also very reasonably say, well, we really want to have regulations that reflect my preferences. Why should I have a regulation that reflects your preference? Well, the difference is that if I'm rich, I'm able to to pay for that regulation by supporting the candidates whose opinions dovetail mine. And then you end up with a with type of regulations that you mentioned before that uh, that um, uh, Giddens and Bartels and others have sort of empirically shown 
that they are actually the ones that are being favored by the rich. So the logic, I think, it seems to me, is inescapable of why inequality essentially translates into the creation of two types of societies within one society, where people simply follow their own preferences, but they come with entirely different answers as to what should be done. Okay. And finally, you say that the, the forces that have been used in the past to try to reduce inequality or that in fact did reduce inequality have lost their power. Taxes, transfers, labor movement, labor unions, and uh, public education. And so I, I, we don't have time to go into why they've lost their power, but what's left? What can, uh, since we've just made the point, as you just did, that inequality hurts a country, hurts a society, what can we do now? I think what we can do is to go back to what I originally said was the problem, and that was a very high concentration of capital into the hands of relatively few people. So what we can do, when I say relatively few, I don't mean like 5 or 10 or 20, but I mean, you know, the top 10 percent, which in the case of the United States is really, you know, more than, you know, 30 million people. But it's still 30 million as opposed to 300 other million. So what I think we can do is to uh, use the policies which already and, and rules which already and laws which already exist about employee stock ownership plans, which would actually stimulate and broaden the ownership of capital among the people who work for the companies, because nowadays we have essentially only the very top of the companies, like CEOs and financial ex- executive officers and others, who get shares as a bonus, but we could also do that for the labor force. So the regulation for that already exists, but the tax advantages could be given to the companies that do that for the labor force as well. Secondly, we could actually have a number of tax advantages for small investors, including the guarantee that they would not lose entire, you know, income so long as they remain small investors and do not, of course, make big investments because you don't want to guarantee that actually people who make a million-dollar investment would actually not fall below the certain line. But you might want to guarantee for people who would make a $5,000 investment. That. And you can also have much higher inheritance tax, which could be used, as people have also suggested, to give grants to Everybody who, at a given age, whether it is 18 or 21 years of age, basically you would have a sort of a grant for being a citizen that would enable you either to use that money for a college or to maybe start your job or, or maybe even to, to waste it, but basically you would actually have the opportunity to do that. So there are a number of things, I think, which could be done to equalize the ownership of capital. And then for the second factor of production, labor, I think there the importance of public education and access to the very high level of public education cannot be uh, cannot be overemphasized. It is absolutely of crucial importance because that would enable people whose parents are not rich to get to schools that are very good, that are excellent, and which would then give them opportunity to have jobs that pay very well. I, I, I will just say that underneath almost every thought and almost every question that we've dealt with <laughs> was was another whole bunch of questions and thoughts. And what I really appreciate, Bronco, is I've uh, done a number of shows on inequality, but, but this examination of the forces that drive it and, the, and the, the, the forces that drive it across the globe and specifically in the U.S. and the, the, the forces that can, that can counter it, I think that analysis I haven't gotten into as deeply as we did today. The book is Capitalism Alone, The Future of the System That Rules the World. The websites are stonecenter, one word, dot gc, dot c-u-n-y, dot e-d-u, and then look for Bronco Milanovic. And then his blog is at g-l-i-n-e-q, dot blogspot, dot com. That's g-l for global, i-n-e-q for inequality, g-l-i-n-e-q, dot blogspot, dot com. For this conversation and many other interviews and articles and to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, go to terrencemcnally.net or a world that just might work.com. They're the same website. That's T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net or a world that just might 
Com. If you want to receive my weekly email announcements uh, telling you who's going to be on what we're going to talk about and usually eight to ten articles to flesh out the conversation, email me at temcnally, one word, at mac.com, M-A-C, T-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y at M-A-C.com. You can also sign up and subscribe at my website. You can subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and most podcast sites. You can find Year of Podcasts at my site or at those different podcast sites. Listen anytime, anywhere. Finally, you can follow me on Twitter, at McNally Terrence. Thanks to George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices. And most of all, you, my listeners, please share this podcast widely. And finally, thank you, Bronco Milanovic. Keep up the good work. Thank you very much. It was really a pleasure to be on your show.